many, many people come to the museum to try to find out, well, what's the story of this place? And there are some really unique characteristics about Gig Harbor that many people are not aware of. They see them, they kind of intrinsically feel them, but until you really begin to dig into those stories, you don't necessarily know the significance of that site. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with Lisa Fruchante, Executive Director of Alma, an enormous campus for food, music, and culture housed within Tacoma's Hilltop neighborhood. Our conversation covered Lisa's distinct vision for stewarding what is becoming a regional cultural mecca, one hellbent on creating our latest stories. And today we'll explore how local stories from our region's distinct seafaring cultures are diligently discovered, protected, and retold to the next generation. Thanks to a repository of over 20,000 artifacts, images, and ephemera, each holding a clue about the evolution of the Pacific Northwest. The stories we'll hear today are dredged from glistening blue waterways of a quiet and unassuming town, nestled within a narrow mile-long inlet and whose storefronts now shine with fancy neon kayaks waiting to be placed into a shoreline bristling with piers, sleek wooden cruisers, glistening sailboats, and the 25-strong fishing fleet that presides over the mile-long bay, working monuments to what was once the largest flotilla of its kind in the Pacific Northwest. So today, and just in time for summer, we'll explore how a little bay, together with a town named for it, has provided safe harbor for generations of seafaring people, both indigenous and immigrant. And we'll hear these stories from the mouths of two dedicated stewards of the stories. And if we listen carefully, We'll also get to hear a few of those voices firsthand from people whose voices and lives might be fading memories, but for the efforts of today's guests. Let's drive so let's welcome Stephanie Lyle and Riley Hall of the Harbor History Museum in Gig Harbor, Washington. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So tell us about your positions at the museum. I'm the executive director, and I've been there for about five years. Started there in 2017, originally as the curator of exhibitions and collections, and then was later hired as the director. So it's been a really interesting time to watch the evolution of the small museum and and really kind of carry forward that vision. And Riley, how about you? What's your role? And Let's see, I guess my title is uh, Preservation Specialist and Shipwright. Uh, So I was hired on at the museum in 2018 to lead the restoration of the 65-foot wooden fishing vessel that we have at the museum. So I've been working with a group of dedicated volunteers bringing this rotten hulk of a (laughs) (laughs) kind of derelict-looking thing back to life and and then transforming it into that final exhibit piece when the gallery is all enclosed. And you mentioned the acquisition of the museum. So I understand it was a family that donated. The whole thing seems very community-focused. Oh, it was very community-focused. The Historical Society started in 1964, and it was just a group of women that formed the Peninsula Study Group. And then they incorporated in 1976 as a nonprofit, started their first little museum in the basement of the old Catholic Church. And it kind of evolved over time. They were for a short time in the old Amateur Garden Club building. Then they were in a log house up by what's now the sewage treatment plant here in Gig Harbor. Okay. And so... They grew and grew and got more and more people interested in building a permanent home for the museum. So they kind of put that vision together in, gosh, probably around 2004. 
six or so. And then uh, by 2008, they had acquired property and come up with a plan. And then a piece of property down on the waterfront became available. So they sort of pivoted, bought this other piece of property, and then kind of reimagined what that museum would be like. So there is one part of the building that is an, uh, an old warehouse building that was built and used by Peninsula Light Company when it owned the property. And then there's another warehouse that is still on the site where Riley's shop is. And then they tore down one of the the other warehouse buildings, but then ultimately built this beautiful museum that was part renovation project, part new construction. What's the vision of the museum? We like to say that we're the museum with roots in our local community and branches of national significance. Because from indigenous cultures to the immigrant people that came to that site, even to all the new people that are moving to the area now, if we're not the stewards of those stories, then we're not doing our job because many, many people come to the museum to try to find out, well, what's the story of this place? And there are some really unique characteristics about Gig Harbor that many people are not aware of. They see them, they kind of intrinsically feel them, but until you really begin to dig into those stories, you don't necessarily know the significance of that site. Can you share a little bit of those characteristics that are distinct to Gig Harbor? Sure, sure. Well, one of the most significant that internationally people are aware of is the collapse of the first Narrows Bridge. So we have quite a large collection of Narrows Bridge objects because that's the connector between the peninsula and Tacoma, Seattle, and just makes a huge difference. So that bridge was built in in 1940 and then, of course, collapsed that same year. And then it was 10 years before it was rebuilt again. So we have a lot of bridge collection talking about, you know, just the original vision for the bridge and the engineers and the designers and, and then the local stories associated with how did we actually get over that bridge and why was that such a big deal? Tacoma Bridge, Washington, opened only a few months ago, was built at a cost of over $6 million. But misfortune overtakes the great structure. Only a 35-mile-an-hour wind is blowing, but this apparently sets up a rhythmic swinging of the bridge, which increases with each swing. Finally, the swinging road and the suspension cables give way and plunge into the water below. Fortunately, the only casualties were a car stalled on the bridge and a dog. I had no idea that it was a 10-year hiatus when it oh, fell yeah. down. So yeah. what happened during those 10 years? Well, interestingly enough, prior to the opening of the bridge, there was a very active ferry service. And the Scanzi brothers that actually had a boatyard in Gig Harbor were critical parts of that story because they built some of the original car ferries. In fact, the car ferries that we know in Washington today are basically based on the Scanzi design. So there were passenger ferries that went all over the place prior to that time, but the car ferries were ferries that the Scanzi brothers kind of developed and then launched, and two of the brothers actually ran those ferries for the Puget Sound Navigation Company. So they were there and in place. When the bridge opened, they began to decommission them, and they began to decommission some of the ferry landing sites. And then four months later, you know, when the bridge actually collapses, then the ferries are actually right there, and one of the ferry landings was still intact. So literally the day after, they had ferry service going once again.
So I was really curious, kind of along that vision, is that when you mentioned how Riley came on board and the process of recruiting and finding him. So I'd love to if you could share kind of what the vision is and why you have a shipwright, you know, yeah. and stuff. Well, one of the things I did when I started at the museum in 2017 was to literally do a review of all of our exhibits, all of our collections that were on view. And obviously, two of our largest objects are the Shenandoah, the 65-foot wooden persainer, and the Midway Schoolhouse. So the Midway Schoolhouse had been really well restored and preserved in 2009, 2010, when they opened the building. And that's a schoolhouse that was physically like dismantled and then reassembled? Or? Well, it was physically picked up and moved to the site. Okay, so, you guys do big things. Well, <laughs> for a little museum, we do big <laughs> things. Yes, it's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was important to save that because there were about 15 one-room schoolhouses in the area. And they... Um, you know, they've all basically either been torn down, burned, or otherwise destroyed. So there's a, a couple that were built later that are still around, but the one-room schoolhouses are pretty much all gone, except for Midway. So we moved that on site. They also moved the Shenandoah on site. But the Shenandoah, to me, is a really important artifact because it is so connected to Gig Harbor's history. How so? Uh it was built at the Scanzi shipyard, so it's built in Gig Harbor for two Gig Harbor families. So originally, Pasco Doritich and his son John were the skippers of the Shenandoah. Pasco's son-in-law was a guy named Nikolai Bezmalinovich. And uh, so Nick Bez, or Nikolai Bezmalinovich, shortened his name to Nick Bez and became very well-known in the cannery world. He actually... Um, bought and sold canneries and built up a kind of a cannery empire uh, until the last cannery he owned was Peter Pan Seafoods, which is actually still around. So Shenandoah was built as a tender for uh, his first cannery. So Shenandoah went to Alaska because at that time they were allowed to have fish traps at the river mouths. And so they would scoop up all the fish that were in the fish traps, put them into a tender. Sometimes those tenders also hauled barges. And um, then they would take that to the cannery to, for processing. So uh, Shenandoah was built for that function and then later was regeared to be a persainer and fished in the San Juan Islands for most of the rest of her career. I mean, again, what is a persainer? As a who's not, I'm not as nautical as you all. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so there are certain types of fishing boats. There's persainers, gillnetters, longliners, but a persainer is specific to the gear that it uses. So essentially they use a skiff that pulls a net off the back of the boat, circles around a school of fish, and then there's a purse string or a drawstring at the bottom of that net that they reel in, tighten it up, and scoop those fish onto the boat. And then Riley, how does he fit into all this? So Riley fits into the big <laughs> picture here because um, the second family that owned the Shenandoah, which was the uh, Tony Janovich family, they ran the boat from 1967 uh, to about, I think their last fishing season was 1998. And that was an all-in-the-family thing. So Tony Janovich, his brother George, his wife fished, his daughter fished, everybody, even his granddaughter fished when she was tiny on, you know, from babyhood to like about four or five years old, she fished on the boat. So uh, they would all go up to San Juan Islands. And then Tony got sick and they asked the question, what do we want to do with this boat? And so the museum had been looking for a boat for the new museum that was built and fished out of Gig Harbor, and that boat fit the bill. So the family decided to donate it to the museum in 2000, 
And then three years later, it was hauled out of the water. Initially, the shipwright that worked on that project was a guy named Mike Vlahovic, which is uh, um, from a Croatian family in the area. He's actually living in Croatia now. But he and his team did the initial assessment of the boat, did a full-on like inventory of all the gear. And then he moved on to other projects. And another shipwright came on board, Nate Slater, who worked on the project for about seven years, just like two half days a week because uh, funding was, you know, minimal. And so when I came on board, I saw this boat. We were spending literally tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to get this boat restored and realizing that the slower you go in an open air situation, the more deterioration still takes place. Mm. So I said, we've got to prioritize this project and we've got to enclose this gallery. And that was about the same time that Nate came to me and said, you know, I'm done with this. I've got to move on to other things. So we did a national search knowing that the right person was out there, but it was going to be really hard to find. And Riley was working on the East Coast at the time. And um, he applied for the position. Our board interviewed him and um, it was a great hire. (laughs) So he's really made incredible strides on the boat since he came in 2018. So Riley, tell us about your journey. You're originally from Gig Harbor? Yeah, so I grew up in Gig Harbor. My mom was actually on the parent-teacher association with Bunky Janovich, Tony's daughter. So... We would go canoeing through the harbor back when the Shenandoah was still in the water. And I remember paddling by the old rotten Shenandoah sitting there at the dock. And, oh, there's, you know, Bunky's dad's boat. And um, <laughs> so I actually remember it being in the water um, way back when. And then I went back east for boat school in Newport, Rhode Island at the International Yacht Restoration School. Great. So you learned how to restore boats. Yeah. So it was a boat building and restoration program. The, the first year we rebuilt a 12-foot Beetlecat sailboat. It's a local Cape Cod design that... I think they've been building since like the 1930s or something. So there's just a zillion of them around and it's really easy to get a derelict hull and rebuild it as a school project. So it's sort of like when you're in med school, you get like a corpse. To yeah, work on like, you know, we, we don't care about this one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was a fun, you know, about everything you can do in a wooden boat in a 12 foot package. So it make it a, a nice boat to work on. And then the second year we did a bigger project. So we did a, a new build on a Watch Hill 15, a, local Rhode Island design, the famous Nathaniel Hirschhoff uh, up in Bristol, Rhode Island. So it was fun to take a derelict thing and then turn it into a brand new thing and then take a pile of lumber and turn it into a brand new boat, kind of got both avenues. And then what's your journey back to Gig Harbor? Well, full disclosure, <laughs> Stephanie's my aunt. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, okay. So I was back east and she called me up one day saying she was going to list a job posting for a new shipwright for the Shenandoah and asked me to read it over and make sure her boat terms weren't too far off. So I was like, well, that sounds fine, but what are you doing with that thing anyways? When you call him for information, were you also scouting him as a prospect? I didn't think he wanted to come back, you know? And so I thought, well, you know, maybe this would be a thing, but maybe not. I don't know. Or maybe he would know someone because I knew that it was going to be really hard to find someone who could come in and do this work or that would want to stick with it, you know? But I figured, you know, maybe there's 
five people in the country and, you know, five people in the world <laughs> because, you know, museum boats are not that common. Mm -hmm. And when you're restoring a boat for the water, it's one thing. When you're restoring a boat for museum work, it's a whole different kind of thing. So how so? And how does that apply to the Shenandoah? Well, one of the things that we have made a priority is making it possible for people to step on board. And in many cases, museum boats, you can't step on board. And so we wanted to make sure that we could reconstruct areas that were completely rotted out or things that we weren't just going to like stabilize it and freeze it in time. We actually needed to bring it back to, you know, stable conditions so that it would be safe for people to be on board. Because, you know, obviously it's not in the water. It doesn't have the water to support it. So there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration to make sure that it's safe to keep out of the water and for people to step on board. Because a lot of these boats can sag really bad over time if they're not stored correctly. So that's something that, you know, Riley is really sensitive to understanding but what does that take because it's both – you know, here's a boat that was on the water. We want to make it look like it's on the water. But how do you translate that into a stable and authentic boat restoration? So, Stephanie, when we were talking earlier, you described it as a Frankenstein boat in the sense that it's an agglomeration of all kinds of different parts in order to restore it authentically. Yeah, it's one of those funny questions that seems to be very neglected in a lot of things. Like, what are you going to do with it? Um, so, like, a boat going fishing, what are you going to Well, we're going to go fishing. So, you're rebuilding it, you know, refitting it and to make it go fishing. We're going to sail across the ocean. That's going to be different than, I just want to have cocktails at the dock, right? You know, if I want to restore like Union Dreamboat to sit out here on Lake Union and sip cocktails with my friends and I never want to leave the dock, that's going to be a different need than if uh, I'm going to go the inside passage up to Alaska. Gotcha. Um, so in the museum context, well, what is the, the new function of this formerly out there in the water working hard fishing boat is to sit in a building and tell a story, tell its own story. So how can we restore that boat in a way that's telling its story and how can the restoration actually tie into the exhibit works and... When I walk onto the boat, I'm seeing something that's I'm learning from instead of just a pretty paint job or, oh, it looks like it should go back in the water. Because to me, it's always sad when you walk into a museum and there's this boat that they fully restored sitting there that never went back in the water. So that was kind of this interesting, like, you know, there's restoring the boat. How do we make it structurally sound? And then also, what can we do to tell that story? So um, we actually decided to restore the boat to different eras. Um, so most, most of the time you see a boat, especially in a museum, there's a specific date that they chose. And that's the most important date in this boat story. So looking at the Shenandoah, we decided that's not the story. The story was they wanted to go fishing. They had a boat built. There's this great local boat building story there. And then over the years, they changed it and they modified it because a ideal fishing boat in 1925 was not an ideal fishing boat in 1955, and it sure wasn't an ideal fishing boat in 1995. Um, so over the years, they changed and they refit it and they modified it, and it was this evolution process of taking a good fishing boat in 1925 and making it sustainable as a good fishing boat, you know, till its retirement. Um, so like the sides of the boat were extended up in the 1950s. The whole deckhouse, pilot house structure was replaced in the late 1940s. So by the time it came to the museum, it looks nothing like it did back in 1925. So there's this 
debate then, well, do we restore it as it came to the museum? Do we restore it to its original launch day configuration? So you're kind of saying, well, the only day this boat was important was when it slid down the ways at the Scansy shipyard. And that seems like, well, shouldn't the other 90 years count? <laughs> um, so we decided let's not pick an area. Let's not pick a date. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then when you want to tell that story of this evolution and this change over time, if I can walk out the door and one side of the boat's totally different than the other, even if I thought it was the dumbest idea I've ever seen, at least somebody's going to go home talking about it. Sure. Hopefully, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. and it's also, you know, a fun way to do different things. And with a community restoration, it's like, you know, so we got to restore the starboard side to its 1970s appearance. And then the port side is being restored to its 1925. So there's two totally different construction techniques, two way different appearances. So it's kind of fun instead of building one side and then you go to the same thing on the other, you get to do something totally new. When I was there last summer, there was like a whole gallery of all the ephemera from the boat. And the one thing that sticks out is like this owl. I don't know what it was like a fake owl. Oh, yeah. 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 What was the owl? So a lot of times people use owls to scare seagulls and other birds away so they don't poop all over the boats. And so Hootie was up on the flybridge of the Shenandoah and brought down special because we were taking things off the boat as he was getting ready to redo all of the flybridge. And so Hootie was, became kind of a central figure for us because he was just, everybody needs a mascot, right? So Hootie became ours. <laughs> so you have 20,000 items and then all those items that sort of were called off the Shenandoah are part of that. But tell us more about how you've accumulated these things, the role of the community. Every object has its own story. So as Riley was explaining, you know, when you're restoring this boat to 1970s and 1925, there's all these interesting things that come off the boat during that restoration process. So part of our tour on the collection side for the last couple of years has been, you know, identifying things that came off the boat that were already in storage tagging those, making sure we can find them in the gearbook from the original inventory, and then deciding what's going to go back on the boat and what's going to stay off the boat. So that exhibit was called Treasures from the Shenandoah, and it was kind of this one moment in time where we had enough stuff that had come off the boat during the restoration process or been found during the restoration process that allowed us to put this exhibit together. So we wanted to tell that story of, you know, all the eras of the Shenandoah, the families, the Fister. And so by creating that exhibit, it allowed us to, A, have a place to sort of highlight some of the unique things that came off the boat. One of my favorites is the sign that Riley found when he was taking apart the foredeck. And it was this plywood patch that was face down on the deck and he pries it up and realizes it's painted on one side and so then he pries it the rest of the way up and it's an old George Janovich election sign because George Janovich, Tony's brother, was the Pierce County Sheriff for many years in the 1970s and so that has special meaning for our town because not only was he with the Pierce County Sheriff but he was also indicted for racketeering. I remember this <laughs> yeah, growing so, up in Tacoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that was a big part of that story but you know, 
We talk about the boat now being kind of Frankenstein-y because one thing we didn't have, and we, you know, as you go through this whole inventory process, you realize, oh, we're, we don't have any of the original portholes. All those portholes were taken out, so we don't have anything like that. They were that. taken out completely and sort of covered yeah. over? Well, yeah, the, the spaces where the portholes had been and were, were filled in or covered over. And so Riley calls me one day and he says, hey, the Fort Bragg is up at Port Townsend and they're going to take it apart. And I had been involved in another boat deconstruction process, which was with the Avalon, another gig harbor saner that got munched up at Port Townsend. But Fort Bragg still had all of her original portals. They're very hard to find from that era. So we got in touch with the port authority there, and and they allowed us to collect a number of objects from the Fort Bragg so that we would have them for the restoration for the Shenandoah. So that made a big difference because now we have these beautiful portals that are on that 1925 side so you can see what it looked like originally. And then there are a few other things that came off that boat, but... You know, the engine is from a fishing boat called the Norman B, and that was beautifully restored by one of our volunteers. And then last October, they actually, you know, hoisted it up piece by piece and dropped it in to the hole so that, you know, the boat now has an authentic engine because she originally had an, an Atlas engine. And then, you know, there's some other pieces and parts uh, from other fishing boats from Gig Harbor, like the Genius. We may be getting a couple pieces from that boat. So, yeah, we just we kind of keep an eye out and an ear out to see if there's boats that are going to be deconstructed or destroyed that we may be able to, you know, pull things from that we need for the boat project. One of the fun things on your website is this blog, which is, you know, you can really dive into it. And there's just all this oral histories that you've collected, the museum has collected over the years. And the, the Emmett Hunt diary was just fascinating. So who is Emmett Hunt and what is his diary? And Yeah, well, the Hunt family came to Gig Harbor. Well, the original Hunt was Miles B. Hunt, who came to Gig Harbor after his service in the Civil War. And then, you know, generations of Hunts have lived in the area since then. But... He was pretty instrumental in passenger ferries, and he realized that there were passenger ferries that were needed to get people from point A to point B around the area, so he built a couple of the original passenger ferries that were in the area. There was an oral history from Buddy Mowich, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. was Quinault and Yakima, but on Wallachet Bay, there was an Indian settlement that is no longer there. I think a lot of the people ended up moving to the Puyallup Reservation, but, mm-hmm. you know. The Mowich family, the Squally family, they all lived on Wallachet Bay. And we actually have a canoe in the collection that was originally made by Dave Squally. And it's a, a beautiful dugout canoe. It's kind of small. But then he later sold it to a Norwegian immigrant who was an egg farmer. And the egg farmer turned it into a rowboat. And then he used to row his his eggs across the Narrows to Day Island to sell them to the food buyer for Tacoma General Hospital. Well, that's a great story. Yeah, it's a great, great object. And Riley's done some conservation work on that canoe as well. Anything else you learned in conserving it? I don't know. It's an interesting little boat, you know, because it's a a log carved into a more of a rowboat shape than a canoe shape. And then the Norwegian thought it needed ribs, so he bent ribs in there and put oarlocks on it and... It's very narrow, so it has these really nifty oarlocks that fold out and give you a much wider, you know, rowing base. So it's just a, you know, to think about him rowing it from Wallachet over to Day Island or wherever. How long of a row is that? 
I would imagine it's like, a, yeah, two or three miles. He had Popeye arms. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's, you know, that was so common back then, though. That was how you got around the sound. You knew what the tides were doing and you knew how to read the water and you knew when to not go. Yeah, because you're going across the narrows, and that is the narrow spot where the water runs really fast. And that's what, what Squabopsh means. It means swift water people. So they actually just recently named the newest elementary school in Gig Harbor, Swiftwater Elementary, after those first people. So oh. it's a pretty cool connection. I always ask our guests, is there a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you? I'd be curious. Riley? Well, I mean, obviously, Gig Harbor. Growing up there, there's these little waterfront things that are still very old, and they're becoming less and less, you know. So there's an old remnants of a little tiny boatyard down below a condominium apartment building on the east side of the harbor that we'd always paddle around right by the creek mouth. and. Uh-huh. You know, that little remnant of that old industry, you know, something like that disappearing. It's like these little things that 10 years ago was there and now it's not. And Uh all of a sudden it's like that little bit of history is gone. So, you know, the amount of development on the other side of the harbor is starting to kind of eliminate the old stuff. And, Mm. you know, obviously old creosote soaked pilings aren't great environmentally. So like a lot of those old piers are being replaced and put in with new ones, mm. which is a good thing. But on the other side, it's kind of sad to see all those old memories go away. Mm-hmm. You know, like that is what it used to be. So then, you know, working at a museum where you can kind of preserve that and try to keep some of that alive is nice. But I love that forgotten industry around the Pacific Northwest. And how about you, Stephanie? Oh, gosh. There's so many places in the Northwest that I think are just pretty incredible. <laughs> and I think, like Riley said, I mean, we're in the business of looking for evidence that's out there of things that were before. And I guess that's kind of my frame of mind, too, where I'm like, I'm always wondering, what was that thing? And where did that come from? What's the evidence that's left behind? So I think what you want to do is try to capture those little pieces of evidence. And a great example is uh, something that's on the museum site that most people would walk right by and would never even think about. But there are these little tiny concrete stairs that got left on the bank uh, just outside the entrance to the museum. And that stairway alone tells the story of one of the first women-owned businesses in Gig Harbor, which was the Eve Glow Dance Studio, that dance and art studio. Uh, Gloria taught art and and Evelyn, I guess, taught um, music or something, or music or dance. And they had that going, but then that building was converted into the first official office for the Peninsula Light Company, which then bought the rest of the property, did a lot of fill. And um, so those little bits of history, if you are also saving the stories that go with them, you maybe you can't save the building, but you can save some evidence that it was there. It's kind of like a little tattoo, you know? And I think those are things that to me are really important. But I also think that there are some towns in Washington state and cities that have kind of got it right in terms of embracing new and adaptive reuse, but preserving old.
So fast forward to the 1950s and the legacy of the Thunderbird, and I maybe turn to Riley here. What was the Thunderbird? What is the Thunderbird? And what is the relevance of Gig Harbor? So the Thunderbird is a 26-foot family racer cruiser sailboat from the 1950s. I think the original is, is it 1958? So the Douglas Fir Plywood Association, you know, post-war plywood is becoming this new cool product, um, and they wanted to promote that, especially to this whole open boating community around here, all these people probably returning from the war, and let's get these families out on the water. What's something else we can do with our plywood? Um, so they had the idea of a design contest that local Northwest designers could submit designs and for a family racer cruiser that you could build in your backyard out of plywood and then go cruising on the weekends or racing um, and would sleep a family of four and be a comfortable little package. And Seattle yacht designer Ben Seaborn, I think, was the only one who actually submitted a design. There's, um, you know, fads in design and boating definitely has strong fads of, you know, a sail, but it's a low slung and curvaceous thing. It couldn't possibly be a boxy plywood thing. I think it's kind of the uh, mentality of a lot of people back then. So the Thunderbird is kind of a goofy looking thing in a way. It's got the transom on the back end going the wrong way. And there were stories of when you, the first one being built in Gig Harbor at uh, Eden Boatyard, they built it upside down. And so when other boat builders would come in and see this thing being built upside down with the transom going the wrong way, they would joke that, well, that's why you don't build it upside down. You put the transom on backwards. You know? <laughs> but, um, so it turned out to be an actually very well thought out design. It performed way better than the designer even thought it would. So that became this local boat that, um, you know, because the Eden Boatyard built the, the prototype, hole number one, which we have at the museum now. They kind of refined the design with two and three since it, you know, you have this boat that performs well and then, like, well, how can we make it easier to build in the backyard? Kind of simplified some of the structure of it. So it was, it became a very popular boat and it was this whole culture of once you have a number of people building it, you know, if you're two weeks ahead of me, then when I run into a question, I can go ask you. But it became popular enough that people are racing them down in Australia and there's a big fleet out in Boston and kind of the era of do it yourself, um, you know, like popular mechanics. Right, and, build your own stereophonic system. Yeah, you, you know, know yeah. Um, there's the rudder magazine would have like, you know, monthly designs that you could build yourself in your backyard. So it's a, a fun era for that and probably also helped keep some of the wooden boat building alive a little longer, I would imagine, because mm. people that didn't want to just go buy a new fiberglass boat, you know, as they're becoming popular in the late 50s, mm. you could build this plywood thing in your backyard instead of buying these expensive new boats. Um, and so it's fun to see people come into the museum, even though there's not even a mast on it right now, they see this boxy sailboat in the corner and they're like, that's a Thunderbird. You know, my grandfather built one and we had it and I, I can't believe we sold it. We never should have sold oh, it, you know, and have these uh, very, and they're these very personal stories being that like, I didn't just go buy it at the boat show, you know, grandpa built it or I built it and, you know, we had it for years and it's your boat, you know, it's your family's boat that you built with your own hands and uh, maybe it took you 20 years, maybe it took you two months, but you know, it's that very personal story. So I have a buddy, Brendan Gilbane, who I mentioned that I'm going to be interviewing the two of you and the fact that you have that number one Thunderbird. And he says, oh, well, I'll let Brendan do the talking because he has a question for you. So, What I love about my Thunderbird is it reminds me of a boat I grew up racing on Cape Cod called the Wiano Senior. It's a classic design. They were wooden boats. Eventually, they went to fiberglass. But like the Thunderbird, 
it's a it's a regional design and it brings out the romance of sailing because it's a they're wooden boat. Now the Thunderbird is different from Muiano, but they both have a big mains, one's twenty six feet, one's twenty five feet, and they have a peculiar design that is a very regional design and they are absolutely lovely. And it just brings out the romantic sailor. If you love sailing and you love wooden boats, the Thunderbird is your choice in this area and I just adore them. My question about it is, it, this is a cruising Thunderbird, so the cabin is a foot longer than the cabin on most Thunderbirds, which are designed for racing. And I wonder if there are any other differences between the cruising Thunderbird and the racing Thunderbird. Thank you very much. Yeah, I know the cabins had originally a big pop-up roof, so you would have standing headroom below. So I'm wondering if, I know some of the later fiberglass molded ones look like they kind of increase that headroom in the cabin, which I think the mentality being that the lower profile boat, the less windage and you'll go faster or something. But as we see with modern boat design, they make them as tall as you can stand up and it seems to work fine. So um, I didn't know they made any longer versions. I'm, I know they did the same thing with the folk boat. It's a Scandinavian design. And it was the same thing where it's kind of a small cabin, but it's, you know, a racer, a cruiser. And in Britain, they decided that they wanted a bigger cabin. So that there's like the English folk boat and they made longer cabins. So I would imagine that it might've just been somebody wanted a more cruisy version with more, you know, there's a bunk up in the bow and that would give you headroom up there, which would be really nice. So I can't imagine that it affects the sailing performance all that much. It's probably being more comfortable isn't always a bad thing, I guess, but... I think that's also an interesting thing where people who are building stuff or making things, I mean, I'm not a boat builder, but I used to sew and design clothes and stuff. And and you would find a pattern that you really liked, but you could adapt it however you wanted. So you might not want to make 10 of the same skirt, but you could make five and then you know, you adapt them a certain way. And so depending on the person that was building the boat, they may, by 800, of course, there's a lot of Thunderbirds out there. So they may have said, well, you know, we just have this desire to have this little bit bigger cabin because we can do X. That may have been the motivation. So I'm just curious, Stephanie, it sounded, you know, when we were talking a little bit earlier, just that it's very challenging running this small museum. So yeah. you can share with me your challenges. Well, I think that probably one of the, the biggest challenges is that we're a community museum, but we're community funded. So there's, you know, basically three ways that museums are funded. One is they have some sort of municipal support, which means tax dollars. In other cases, they have large endowments like the Getty Museum. Um, in most other cases, you work hand to mouth and every day is a fundraising day. So we rely on earned income, donations, membership, lots of grants, do a lot of grant writing just to make things happen. So you know, that's probably the greatest challenge that we have is how do we keep this place going and keep it viable when we don't have a dedicated source of funding? So, you know, we're actually looking at the possibility of starting something called the Peninsula Cultural Arts District, which is a small taxing district in the area that would fund arts and cultural programs, not just a museum, but some of the other local nonprofits that provide educational programming and have public hours and that sort of thing, because it's... Um, 
it's really hard to find all the funding you need, especially in a time when, you know, quite candidly, people are disincentivized to donate because of the current tax laws. And there is a economic uh, wheel that turns in American society that is about how do you support nonprofits? And that's part of that is you're getting a tax break. But when you're not getting a tax break, what's the motivation to mm. donate? So, mm. um, so we have to find as many ways as we can to try to keep the museum going. What's the greatest reward for you doing this work? Well, I have to say that it's the people that I work with, honestly. I mean, they are great professionals. They are incredibly full of heart and dedication to what we do in less than perfect circumstances. And so I think the fact that we have been able to assemble a team that is just awesome and is super dedicated and knows their job is a huge asset to the community. And you know, while some nonprofits are completely funded by volunteers entirely, we're to a point in our community where we want to provide viable jobs within the community. And we want to give people the opportunity to do work that they were trained to do. Um, this is pretty specialized work in many cases. And many people have specialized degrees or multiple degrees. And, you know, could they be working for Boeing or doing something del- sure. else? Sure. But they choose to work there. And I think that makes it a really special place. And every single person there, I think, really, from our staff to our volunteers to even our visitors, they're all there because they want to learn something new. And that's the joy of this job is you get to learn something new every day. And you get to, you know, be a a detective and an archaeologist. And I call Riley the boat archaeologist because he's always like finding stuff on the boat that is like, hey, this used to be this or it used to be that. And piecing together those mysteries is really special. So I think that's probably for me, the people we get to work with. And when we meet someone in the community that has a story that we feel we got to capture right away, we do it. We ask our guests to bring in an object or something that they care about. Did you guys bring something in, Stephanie? We did, yeah. Let's see. We got a couple of things here. Mine is a toy Zeppelin, <laughs> which is kind of funny because um, it, for me, it symbolizes the process of finding the deeper story. And one of the questions we get about the Shenandoah all the time is, how did it get that name? Because Shenandoah does not seem like a Northwest name at all. And so I went through this whole big, long research process trying to figure out where in the world they would have gotten the Shenandoah name. And in some cases, you hear a family story that says, oh, yeah, we named the boat the Avalon because it was easy to paint on there. There were no curvy letters (laughs) except for the O. But Shenandoah has an interesting connotation. And while there's a a sea shanty that is connected with the term Shenandoah that might have been, you know, learned on a boat coming over from the old country, most likely what we have realized is that the Shenandoah airship came to the Northwest in October of 1924. Airship? Airship. 650-foot-long airship came from the U.S. Navy, was touring around the country, came to the Puget Sound, was going to dock at this docking tower at Fort Lewis in October of 1924. Shenandoah 
the boat was being built right at that time. But everybody went to see that thing. More than 10,000 people went to Camp Lewis, as it was called at the time, to see this huge airship. But prior to that, because of the winds and because of the temperature, it couldn't dock right away. And so it circled Puget Sound for almost an entire day. And people came out to watch this thing. And, you know, it was just like this amazing phenomena and the symbol of the Ultorama future technology. And for three guys that are building a boat that they want to be the symbol of their prosperity for the future and technological innovation, why not name it the Shenandoah? Wonderful. And speaking of names, Gig Harbor, what is a gig and how did it, yeah. how did the harbor get named it? Gig Harbor was named after a boat. So um, the Wilkes Exploring Expedition or the American Exploring Expedition came through that area in 1841 with the express purpose to survey the shorelines. And so the survey crew came in through the very, very narrow mouth of Gig Harbor, which is uh, bordered by a large sand spit on one side. And the survey vessel, which is a 10-person rowing gig, open rowing gig, it's kind of a wide bottom boat, pretty stable. And um, so they were able to get that through the mouth of the harbor and discover this whole beautiful bay. And they named it on the chart Gig Harbor. So the Wilkes Exploring Expedition map is the first time we see Gig Harbor named on a map. And it's named for that boat. And we happen to have the porpoise out in front of the museum right now, which is a replica survey vessel from that expedition. Wonderful. And Riley, what did you bring in? I brought a slick, which is a woodworking tool. It's basically a giant chisel and it's a long handle. So you're controlling it with the handle and its own weight is kind of carrying it through the wood. Um, and this is important to me because it came from my mother's great uncle or something along those lines um, who worked at Tacoma Boat and uh, building boats in Tacoma. He did a lot of the interior joinery work on them, but this was one of his tools that I inherited from him. So... He has all those stories of his 40 years of boat building with it. And then now I can keep it slicing wood and keep it up and running and in <laughs> serviceable condition. I had to repair the handle. Um, it was chipped when I got it. And now it's just nicely got its patina back, um, even on the new wood. So it was really obvious when I did it. Now it's just just my hand oils, I guess, have uh, patinaed it. So that's wow. fun. Um, but yeah, that's another thing with building wooden boats is uh, you get to use cool tools like this that are still actually handy and there you know there's so many motorized things but occasionally there's just the best way is an old hand tool mm -hmm. and i think all the guys that perfected wooden boat building over thousands of years really had it pretty dialed in and we tend to think that oh the only way to do is that you know is a router or a saw or something but then you pull out some old hand tool that's actually sharp and you're like snick snick Mm -hmm. that's the perfect tool for the job and um, <laughs> you know so it's fun to get an excuse to play with tools like this and keep it around keep them going lastly it sounds like there's a big fundraiser coming up and so our guests can have a way to both tour the museum and contribute to it so cool. what's that 
Well, on August 20th, we have both a community concert and an online auction that'll happen. We're kind of combining that with a museum open house since we haven't been able to do anything live for the last two years due to COVID. Mm. We want to showcase the Maritime Gallery and all the work that's been done on the Shenandoah since we were able to continue that on during COVID. So on August 20th, we have the amazing band Junior Cadillac that'll be doing an outdoor concert for us and also we'll be doing short live auction and open house and online auction the week before. So we invite anybody and everybody that's interested in being a part of that to get some tickets and join the fun. Well, Stephanie and Riley, thank you again for being here and for opening our eyes to your community through all these great stories. Well, we're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Under a gig I invite our listeners to head across the Narrows Bridge to Gig Harbor sometime this summer. Head to the Harbor History Museum for their fundraiser, maybe. Sounds like a great summer day. Join us next time when our guests will be social media influencers Anthony and Marley Love, hosts of the YouTube channel Traveling While Black in Seattle, with over 2,000 YouTube subscribers and brand partnerships with the Seattle Space Needle, Fedora's Travel, King 5, and the Drew Barrymore Show. Like any recent transplants, they arrive with wanderlust, hoping to explore a region's parks, restaurants, remote islands, small towns. But they weren't sure where to go, where they would feel comfortable as black people. So they created Traveling While Black to document their travels and to guide others. The work takes inspiration from the historic Negro Motorist Green Book, an annual guidebook for black road trippers published by Victor Hugo Green, an African-American mailman in New York City, who published that between 1936 and amazingly through 1966. We know that you'll find Anthony and Marley entertaining and grounding, so please drop in and listen next time. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering by Daniel Gunther and Aisha Ubadatelaka. Photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Barbour. Theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway with additional music by Andrew Weathers, as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. And for this episode... We also included Under a Gig Harbor Moon, written by Laurel Cole and sung by Laurel with the Dick Coolin Ensemble. We record at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories. 